Going into situations not knowing, it means that everything is brand new. It's uh, novel, but it takes, uh, you know, examining, you know, that internal conditioning in order to be non-reactive, in order to be rational and objective. And so from that, uh, from mindfulness as a state of mind, um, you're taking yourself out of the situation. So it's depersonalized. Consciousness. The notion of the self. Personality structure. Transactional analysis. Symbiosis. Zen Buddhism. Teacher-student relationships. Training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space. The virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. The title of this afternoon's um, presentation is Mindfulness. What is it? How do I practice and why? And so I'm hoping to answer um, those questions. So, you know, if you take five seconds to Google uh, mindfulness, or maybe you don't even need to, uh, what you'll see is it's become a kind of panacea for all kinds of different uh, medical conditions, uh, certainly in um, the therapeutic mental health uh, kind of division of things. Um, it's purported to have all of these um, benefits. Now, I come out of uh, training in meditation through Zen Buddhism, and I'll talk a little bit about Zen within the process, but the reason you are mindful and you're taking these contemplative approaches is not so much so I personally can be better. I can concentrate better, I can have more control, better sleep, you know, be more compassionate, etc. It's not that those things aren't necessarily true, that isn't... Uh, a kind of side effect of mindfulness practices. Um, these are what Suzuki Roshi would call gaining ideas. So that you do it uh, like, like an investment. You put money in so you get a higher return on it back. Uh, with a Buddhist orientation to mindfulness, you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And I'll, I'll talk about that. And also, uh, the Buddha, when he was teaching 2,500 years ago, and he taught this kind of self-study program, really a psychotherapy uh, program is the teachings of the Buddha way before there were psychotherapists. Um, he said, I'm not guaranteeing anything. He's saying, sit down, try it, uh, see what happens. But he, like it's sort of being sold now, it's, mindfulness as a movement has almost become a commodity uh, for self-improvement. I'll talk a little bit about that. But I know from my own personal experience, uh, and from my experience with psychotherapy clients is that doing single-pointed activities like reading and meditation where you're just focusing on your breath, uh, my ability to stay or to sustain focus uh, has improved over time. Um, back in 2009 when I was first exposed to mindfulness, I was in graduate school and I really had a hard time with reading comprehension and it wasn't because I wasn't intelligent enough to read the books, it's because when I would sit down and read, 
I'd start to get pictures in my head, <laughs> that fantasies, memories, things I want to do. So maybe one thing to start this lecture, it's very tempting to open up a tab and go on Facebook or check your calendar. You know, silence the phone because you'll actually, if you learn nothing from my teaching, you'll notice that pictures pop into your head. When you close your eyes, it's like there's a screen. Uh, Suzuki Roshi called it a white screen. Uh, and things get, it looks like it gets projected on there. Or you hear words, you'll hear a voice that's sort of like one of your parent figures that's critical, maybe critical of me or critical of this you know, presentation or whatever. So just notice that stuff coming up and you don't have to do anything about it, just notice it and try and just focus on your breath. Bring your tensional awareness down to your belly. You know, when we take a deep breath, it slows everything down. Uh, you get more oxygen to the body. I mean, that's some of, I think, what these benefits are, is just regulating your breathing, regulating your energy. And that's certainly something that I've experienced from prolonged uh, practice. And I'll talk about that. But bring your attention to your gut. You know, we in Western culture, it's all about our head, what's going on in our mind. But it, if you have too much thoughts going on, bring it to your belly and notice your breathing's probably up in your chest, up in your throat. My primary role is psychotherapy. I started doing that in uh, 2008, 2009, but um, one of the more interesting things and things I'm really proud about is I had an opportunity to build a relationship with a childcare center here in Mankato. Uh, on the upper right is a, a picture from their online magazine, and so that's my, my daughter uh, from back in the fall. Uh, and me, I, I was, you know, if my daughter's going to be on a magazine cover, it, it better be <laughs> with me. So I thought I'd get out in front of, in front of that. Uh, but there's an article in there, and I'll, I'll send all this information and the link to it, about my experiences with teaching. Uh, first, the leadership team at Cultivate Minnesota. Then I started working with preschool age kids, and now I'm even working with toddlers and going into the infant rooms, talking with the teachers and engaging. And uh, this was all baptism by fire for me. I had no idea. I still have no idea what I'm doing in there, but I've developed a little bit of a, a program in terms of what we do. We do mindfulness first, then we do meditation, then I tell them a story. And the simple version of mindfulness is that you're thinking, which means you're thinking about your own thinking. Consciousness is able to uh, examine consciousness, which is pretty bizarre to think about. So you can analyze your own conditioning, but then it's also remembering. So it's learning from the habits. So it's a relational process. It's, it's, it's misunderstood. Buddhism and mindfulness are misunderstood as just individualistic processes, which there is an individuality component to it, but it's so that you can improve your relationships. And so what I learned from this process is that I just need to get to know these kids. And how do you do that? You just be yourself and you learn their names. And so now this is where my kids uh, go to daycare, if that's not obvious. I know almost all the kids' names in the daycare, which is pretty bizarre. Uh, I'm a little celebrity when I walk into daycare, at least that's how I think about it. But <laughs> all the kids, oh, Andrew, and look and say hi, and it's a, it's a wonderful community that they've built at Cultivate. So I could talk more about this as we go along. Um, the other experience that kind of started off my um, teaching of mindfulness was I had the opportunity to go into the Wisconsin prison system in 2016, specifically into a maximum security prison um, that had solitary confinement units. Um, if you 
if you've never been in uh, American prison, you can't really understand American culture. Uh, American culture is extremely violent and competitive, and you can understand the culture by understanding how we treat um, those that are incarcerated. And some of the men that I met have been in solitary confinement for over 10 years. The World Health Organization defines solitary confinement as torture after 15 days. So this is, this is a hell uh, that these people are living in. And the reason I bring it up is because, uh, you know, solitary confinement, the absence of stimulation and relational processes, it decays the body. Uh, we're relational bodies fundamentally. And so if you don't have contact socially, and the men figure out ways to communicate despite the segregation, uh, the sequestration, um, then the body decays. I mean, we know this from the very beginning. Infants, if they're not stroked, if they're not touched, they won't survive. Uh, they need that body uh, sensation, sensory um, contact. But these men were not broken. They could focus, they could concentrate. Of course, they were guarded. They were almost all people of color, and we were all white guys coming in there um, to teach them. But the mind, consciousness, uh, cannot be broken. Uh, I have pretty critical views on psychiatry and, and mental illness that we're not going to talk about now, the body can be destroyed. Uh, and you do that by, ba by both sensory overload and the elimination of, of sensory information. So it's extremely loud on solitary confinement units. Uh, so you have constant noise. It's very hard to sleep, but then they don't have anything to do. They're in these disgusting um, little cells. So <clears throat> experience teaching there and um, with three kids, I, I don't really have the time to, to do that same kind of work now, but I like to bring attention uh, to it. Um, and the other thing about this was we were teaching a very secular mindfulness approach. So we would say, you know, notice the stim stimuli or stimulus that comes up. You know, somebody gestures at you in a certain way, and then you have all these ideas about fighting and, you know, whatever happens, and you try and create a window between that reactivity, you know, think of for yourself, you get cut off uh, on the road and you react versus responding. So mindfulness is really about creating this window of uh, responsiveness, the appropriate response to the situation, uh, not just our conditioned uh, reactivity. So obvious reasons for, for why the prison would allow us to come in there is because they want social control of the uh, inmates, inmates. So if it means they fight less and they get along better, uh, that's all for the better. Uh, mindfulness, you know, is the ability to both understand what's happening inside and outside at the same time, but also you can drop that distinction as you cultivate what's called emptiness in Zen practice where the mind is completely um, clear and it's this not knowing mind. So every, if you know everything, like we live in this age of notifications, reminders, you know, what's the weather, bank account, et cetera. But that, um, that doesn't resolve our feelings about a situation um, that, that, you know, even if you know it's gonna be 70 degrees today, well, what if the app's wrong? You know, what if something happens? You can't know for sure, but going into situations not knowing, it means that everything is brand new. It's uh, novel, but it takes, uh, you know, examining, you know, that internal conditioning 
in order to be non-reactive, in order to be rational and objective. And so from that, uh, from mindfulness as a state of mind, um, you're taking yourself out of the situation. So it's depersonalized. So if you say something, if I'm not identified, if I don't have a solid identity of who I am, then it doesn't matter um, what you say. I'm not taking it personally. I'm just responding appropriately in the moment. And that gets at um, the last uh, point here, state of mind to examine conditioning. This is a, a Buddhist approach is that you sit in the quarter lotus posture that you're examining and contemplating, you know, what's coming up in your head and understanding what you do in social situations that lead to suffering. So it's mindfulness is not just about being in the present moment, it's about remembering so that you don't, you know, in real colloquial terms, you don't be an you know, is that we all act like a jerk in situations and we keep doing the same thing, is this karmic cycle. And that's because we were conditioned as children in certain ways. This is the tie into a uh, kind of psychotherapy, a uh, therapeutic, and it's like we're wind-up dolls based on our cultural conditioning, specifically from our parent figures. So you need to examine that to understand how you operate. So that's mindfulness as a, basically a state of mind and a tool, but right mindfulness is actually one arm of what's called the Eightfold Path in Zen Buddhist practice. And this is an ethical framework for examining your conditioning, how you operate. Uh, so another way of thinking about mindfulness is from this principled position, uh, which is uh, to, to go back to the state of mind you had before you had a solid constructed identity. If any of you have kids, you know at about six to eight months, it's like fireworks go off in their brain. The neuroplasticity, like they just are like all of a sudden there when there wasn't really something there before. So from a Buddhist perspective, you're trying to go back to that pre-egogic position. So it's this kind of ultimate form of not knowing because you don't even know who you are in a situation, you're, you're a sort of a, a Martian in a sense. You don't know what's happening uh, and you're just responding to what's happening just like a little baby, right? They don't think, oh, I'm a little baby and I'm gonna you know, do this or that until they start crawling, locomotion, they start moving, especially when they start walking. They're like, oh, I can pick this up and throw it on the ground and mom will pick it up. You know, it's like they start understanding themselves as autonomous, as separate, uh, a separate self, but so with mindfulness as a as a principle and as a tool, you're trying to return to that egolessness because then everything is brand new. You've never seen anything like this before. Okay, so I could talk more about mindfulness, but the, we got a short amount of time, so I'll just jump ahead. But the, this short version is that simple consciousness of an infant. Okay, so what do you actually do in terms of practicing uh, mindfulness? Well, you're sitting in a relaxed but a noble upright position like you saw in that picture before. And you're just trying to keep your body still, which is very difficult. I imagine some of you are fidgeting and, and playing with things right now. It's very difficult to control ourselves because we have that um, energy. Freud called it the libidinal energy. We don't know what to do with. So you're sitting there noticing, like I was saying, the pictures that come up in your head, the words, the, the editorializing, etc. And you're just stopping the thinking. 
So people will say to me, well, I can't meditate. I don't know how to slow my mind down. Well, of course not. I mean, your brain produces thoughts. <laughs> you want to tell your heart to stop pumping blood, right? It's an organ, uh, and it's an organ for uh, well, lots of things, but thinking is one of them. So you can stop your thinking in a momentary sense. So you stop your thinking and you come back to an object of orientation, which is the, bre the breath is one. And so you're just paying attention to your breath. So you've stopped thinking. But then you start thinking about your grocery list or this weekend, or you just stop. And you don't do it in a mean way. Oh, I'm such a jerk, I'm an idiot. You just go, oh, no, there I go thinking again. So actually the sort of benefit and the process is is the the ability to interrupt uh, thinking. So you're constantly failing. This is why nobody does it. <laughs> Meditations, you're constantly failing. Oh, I was out to lunch, I was fantasizing, I was rehashing this memory, I was planning a conversation, etc. But it's very simple. That's how I teach my clients uh, meditation and the ones that do this form of uh, concentration practice, a Zen meditation doing that and they start reading because I prescribe a book, they get better. Without, I don't do anything in terms of the actual therapy. Uh, they get better on their own from being aware of their own thinking, okay? Uh, <clears throat> so the, the kind of benefits of uh, mindfulness, uh, psychiatrist Eric Byrne a long time ago referred to the brain as the organ of waiting. So human beings, the, the anatomy of the brain necessitates our ability to remember to make connections but to store energy so we so with mindfulness and meditation what you're doing is you're waiting not in a passive way but you're just allowing things to arise and you're letting go versus doing something and planning uh, something and so that turns out to be very beneficial for learning now the thing we know now that we didn't know uh, prior is that the brain doesn't just stop changing and growing at age 18 and then you know it's all downhill from there i mean it's actually constantly um fluctuating and changing till about 25 but there's these periods of neuroplasticity uh, where you have these eruptions of kind of changes in the brain but what we know now is whatever you pay attention to whatever if you learn japanese or you fall in love those connections are constantly actually changing the physicality of the brain, the, the structures of the brain. Uh, and so it's like this self-modifying sponge. Whatever's happening in your environment and what you're thinking about is constantly changing uh, the brain. So just like consciousness can examine consciousness, the brain is constantly examining and learning from its environment. That's why human beings are so uh, adaptive. Uh, every every narrative in the culture right now is like, oh my God, we're all going to die, and look at how bad the future looks. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, human beings have always adapted, and they'll continue to adapt. That doesn't mean we don't pay attention to things like climate change and violence and war, but human beings are very adaptive. Um, okay, so this is where you can get into the kind of neuroscientific research. The very quick and dirty version of it is if you think of your fist as a brain and your, your wrist as the brain stem, if your thumb's inside uh, your fist, then you have the what's called the limbic system where the amygdala is. This is like the emotional brain versus the neocortex is like the human uh, brain, the more executive functioning. The short version is the idea is that 
mindfulness and meditation strengthen this prefrontal cortex and they find changes in the in the activity there that make you able to better regulate um, your emotions so like for example the amygdala is like a smoke detector it picks up on potential threats just like you know if there's smoke there's probably a fire um, but a lot of our fear is not necessarily rational and so you're able to recognize oh I'm experiencing some fear and you can name that in your mind and that actually calms down um, the amygdala uh, let me give you a funny example when I was in New York City a number of years ago we're all out on this pier and you could see the storm coming in the rain and, and you know how like in the Midwest when it's like really cold or it's raining people like just walk around they're acting like it's not cold and it's not gonna rain in New York, New York City people are different they see the clouds they're like let's go and everybody started running on the pier and we got to this uh, shelter or overhang where I took this picture it rained for like three minutes and then it was done and gone so uh, you, you know mindfulness doesn't mean passivity I mean sometimes you got to run you got to get up and go and respond uh, to that feeling as we close out um, I want to just say something uh, a little bit critical of mindfulness as a movement as it has become uh, really commodified and, and embraced really uh, across the political spectrum. The reason for that, I think, I think there's a number of reasons, uh, but one of them is, we're talking about just like when I was teaching in the prison, there is this idea of pacification, uh, that you make yourself um, passive in the sense of just being in the moment not thinking of the past or the future and it, it merges with this culture of this hyper presence that we're in like everything is right now oh my god this is the worst thing you've ever seen like emergency can you believe this happened everything that we click on online produces this arousal um, in us and so the idea with mindfulness as kind of a movement is that it's your responsibility to moderate your own stress and to just focus on yourself to optimize yourself but that by default means that we're not looking outward at the institutional things that the economic system that is you know uh, plundering the earth and pushing us to enormous cognitive limits in terms of what we're doing so in a way it's a kind of distraction from collecting collectivity social movements it's not that I'm saying you shouldn't be mindful but these uh, the sort of appification of mindfulness uh, there's there's a lot of self-reinforcing things within the culture that um, would prefer us to all sit in our rooms and put our earbuds in and just forget about the world around us I mean, that's a very you know kind of cynical view of mindfulness a real damning critique of the mindfulness movement comes from what um, Ron Purser calls Mick mindfulness is that it's all about making myself a better competitive actor in this uh, the, in this system that's driven by this science of happiness that if we're just happier and if we're not happy it's our own responsibility you know this kind of distorted uh, view and so it, it really like he says disembeds us from our social experience you know you can teach mindfulness uh, in the prison or you can teach it uh, in a situation where people are, are struggling in poverty but that's not going to change their social world and, it, and in a weird way it, it kind of puts the onus on them that you have to better focus um, etc that's a real quick version of kind of saying it but you know wellness is um, you know fundamental to human nature we have to take care of ourselves 
but everywhere you go, somebody's telling you and selling you snake oil about how to be happier, like especially online, uh, to maximize your personal well-being. Again, it's this subtle thing, but on a cultural scale, a global scale, it's putting more of the onus on the individual, which I think is part of the problem uh, to begin with. By just focusing on yourself and looking inward, by default you're neglecting, well, why is it I'm so stressed? Um, you know, what, what's happening, you know, may, the, how precarious work is, meaning that we're working all the time, you know, uh, and it's not really clear um, how secure your job is. You know, so all these like economic forces, these political forces, he gives the example of, you know, you can go to an inner city uh, where there's extreme poverty and teach kids, you know, mindfulness. But if they go home and they're still malnourished and there's threats of violence, you know, is that really going to make a difference? Or similarly, you know, you can train hedge fund managers to get a, get a mental edge and then they can uh, make trades in a more sort of efficient way. But a lot of Wall Street is just manipulating currencies and then you have famines in certain places you know in the name of short-term profits or think of the military training their their drone operators to be more mindful to be more precise with targeting uh you know people or places with bombs i mean so there if you strip out that ethical aspect of it Anybody can be, you can be a more mindful assassin, you can be a more mindful dictator, you know, etc. Uh, but then the other thing is uh, where he talks about uh, this can promote passivity because we're just focusing on ourselves and not focusing on what's going on in the world and what's actually causing us um, to feel so terrible. And I think it's, it's this mindlessness, but also it's a kind of contactlessness in our culture where because of uh, telecommunications technology, we can constantly be sending out information back and forth to one another. Um, but that doesn't tell us anything about the person's state of mind. Um, it's, it's just, it's just um, this binary language. And so actually with that proliferation of information technology, there's actually less uh, body to body communication now than before. Children are learning more words from machines than they're learning from their own um, parents. So that's his critique that that mindfulness is just getting captured by this wellness industry. You know, the, the mindfulness industry uh, is something like four or five billion dollars a year and it's it's all about investing in ourselves to maximize our personal well-being is what he's saying in a kind of uh, sarcastic way there. Okay, so how do I actually apply this in terms of mindfulness practices? Uh, doing things uh, one at a time, if you can. Um, you know, most of us have multiple computers and are doing multiple things. The, the average attention span for office workers is something like three minutes. Uh, so if you can do one thing at a time, uh, reading actual physical books where you have a relationship with this object that all the books are different, you know, different weight, different feel to them. You have a relationship with the author that you're learning something, you're memorizing um, information versus the virtual world. We're just getting uh, our attention pulled in and given 
things to think about versus thinking uh, for ourselves. Uh, you can eat in silence rather than scrolling or watching the TV. The ideal thing would be, you know, if your group could start a, a, a meditation group because we can't just sit alone in our on our rooms. We need to be connected with other relational bodies to learn about this stuff, but then just practicing for a few minutes uh, in the morning is ideal. Uh, again, you don't have to re really be thinking about anything or trying to stop your thinking, actually just sitting in relative silence, but not moving uh, your body. When I talk to my clients about, about starting a practice on their own, they want to evaluate it. You know, they want to say, oh, this time it went good, this time it went bad. And I say, okay, if you have to evaluate it, which I would tell you not to do just to keep practicing, imagine it's a fly on the wall uh, evaluating. They would, the fly would only see if you're moving or not moving, you know, you're scratching your face or coughing or something during the meditation. Uh, the fly can't read your mind. So that's the, the perspective on it. Can you just sit? Uh, with stillness. You won't be able to stop your thinking and the irony is that if you don't try and stop your thinking, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I got a glass of water here. If it was a muddy glass of water, it'd all be blurry and floating around. If you don't touch the glass, right, if you just leave it, everything settles to the bottom. Same thing with meditation practice. If you just don't do anything, eventually your mind will get used to not having as much uh, stimulation. Okay, a couple others. Uh, turn phone, phone notifications off. Don't use a smartwatch because it's thinking and remembering for you. It's telling you when to breathe, etc. That's a passive relationship. I could talk all day about <laughs> virtual, uh, the virtual world and technology. Maybe that's for another time. Uh, but it's not making us smarter. Okay, it's making us dumb. Uh, social media apps. I've done this personally. Just delete them off your phone. So you can't just jump on YouTube or Facebook. You actually have to type it into a web browser because when I type in youtube.com, I'm like, do I really need to go on YouTube? I'm like, is this really something? You know, so it exercises some critical thinking. And most of the time, no, I don't need to. So you can still go on a laptop or whatever, uh, but, but the, with the technology, they want us to not even have to think at all and to just be on that platform. Um, okay, so that, uh, other things, doing one thing at a time, brushing your teeth, uh, spending time in nature. Um, just to close, I wanna uh, talk a little bit, um, not just tell a story. That's how I close out with the kids. They love these uh, stories. So this, uh, there's this Zen koan about uh, a man that's in the jungle. He's, he's uh, walking through the jungle and he's spotted by a, a tiger and the tiger gives chase. Chases the man, he runs to this precipice, leaps over and he grabs this vine uh, with his hand. So he has this tiger up above him and then he looks down, there's another tiger below. If he climbs up, he'll be killed. If he falls down, he'll be killed by the tiger. And just as he's thinking that, he notices a black mouse and a white mouse climb out onto the vine and it starts chewing. They start chewing on the vine. So the implication is that the vine is gonna break and he's gonna fall. And he sees out of the corner of his eye this strawberry bush. He grabs a strawberry, he bites the strawberry, and he tastes the sweetness. So that's the end of the, the parable. The only thing that's actually happening in the moment is the sensation, the sugar, you know, the, the flavor of the strawberry. All this stuff about the future and the past is not happening right now. 
you know, uh, life and death is really what Zen uh, is all about. That as that that's a one kind of transition. Uh, but the mindfulness is like, what are you actually experiencing in terms of sensations, emotions, and that's what's real. That's the thoughts about the tiger and death and what's going to happen. That's not real. There's there's a sweetness to the moment, and that's what what mindfulness is about: being in the moment and remembering and uh, thinking. So the the other thing, the reason why I brought this koan in is this is where I'll close. Is you know he's hanging by his hand, and I have three kids. My youngest is uh, almost a year and a half, and what's incredible about children is they learn to use these tiny little hands, <laughs> like they can do buttons and they can do zippers. Like you don't remember learning how to do a zipper because somebody taught you how to do that and showed you how to do things. But the amazing thing about human nature, the adaptability, is that we can figure out how to make tools with our hands. So yes, the brain is important, the head is important, but it's our hands. Like human beings hold hands. Why do we do that? Because <laughs> we need to be connected. Why do, why do my kids all want to sit on my lap at the same time? They don't want to be, you know, have this body to care, carry around. They just want to be emotionally connected. So just thinking about the hand is, is what's incredible about human beings. Yes, we have this self-awareness, etc. but hands allow us to cooperatively engage with one another and create this crazy civilization, skyscrapers, you know, all kinds of things is because of the human hand. A robot cannot open a door. Uh, a robot cannot do a zipper, those kinds of things. It's the human hand that's evolved. Um, so with that, I'll, uh, I'll close. I'm the Subversive Therapist. Thanks so much for listening. 